The Bible begins with God. First just begins that God is there. No one made God. He never popped into existence. He's always been. He is. I am. Amen? Well, God was there, but then what does God do? He created a world. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars. He created the earth and the seas. But the jewel of God's creation was he created man and woman and placed them in his garden, which we called Eden. And God put them there, not just to lounge around all day and eat fruit in the garden, God told Adam, go fill the world, subdue the world, multiply. He's basically telling Adam and Eve, go out, have some kids, and have an awesome adventure in this amazing world that I built for you. He was not just telling them to stay in Eden forever. We often get that wrong, that Eden was the final destination. It wasn't. That was the central place where it began. But God tells them, go out. The rest of this world is an untamed wilderness. Go get it. Go make something out of it, Adam. However, of course, the tragedy of existence is that they didn't do that. Maybe it didn't take very long, but they were lounging around eating fruit until Eve began to listen to the serpent that was telling her this one tree that you're not allowed to eat, the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that's, that's the thing God's keeping from you. If you eat that fruit, you'll become like God. And God's trying to keep you from that, which is such a foolish thing to say, isn't it? After God had already told them, here's a universe, go play, go have fun, do whatever you want. What can I not do? Well, you cannot know good and evil. I mean, you cannot have that experiential understanding and knowledge of what it means to rebel and to sin. Well, when we ate that fruit and were cast out of the garden, existence, life, became one of hardship and pain. Bible says the ground is now going to produce thorns and thistles. There's going to be pain in childbirth. There's going to be uh, conflict between the sexes, which continues even to this day. But in that beginning, God promised that there would be one to be born to the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and restore everything. It says one day... Eve is going to have a child, or a child of a child, you understand, who is going to crush the serpent, who is the devil, we know that from further scriptural revelation, and remake everything. And that promise was under constant attack throughout scripture. And as people went farther and farther away from the Lord, God selected one man, Abraham, and said, I'm going to preserve the knowledge through you. And one nation that came from this man, Abraham, Israel to carry God's law, to carry the truth about God. All over the world, mythologies were springing up, lies about God, mingling the truth that they remembered with the deceit of Satan and coming up with all these fanciful, strange ideas. The Lord said, through one nation, I'm going to preserve what's true. And that was Israel. And in due time, you know, God's son, Jesus Christ, was born he was born to the house of Israel, as had been promised. He was born to a virgin named Mary. And Jesus Christ lived a life on this earth that was the fulfillment and the intention of everything that man was supposed to be. We often think we couldn't live without sin. What would life even be like if we didn't have those things? Jesus shows us what that life looks like. He taught us the truth. He brought us back to the unadulterated, unfiltered truth. And y'all, not everybody liked it, did they? Jesus Christ was crucified. He was nailed to a Roman cross by jealous men. Imagine, people have said how many times, well, if God would come down and talk to me, I'd listen to him. Well, God did that. And some people listened, but the majority of the people said, let's kill him. And they did exactly that. But because the Son of God has life in himself, he could not remain dead. And on the third day, hallelujah, Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? The curse of death. Oh, come on. Amen? Amen. The curse of death that came through sin was broken through Jesus. He came back to life as a herald of the new life to come. The serpent's head was crushed. He had bruised the heel of the son of woman, but the serpent's head had been crushed. So where do we stand now? Well, Jesus said, before we finish this up, we've got to tell everybody. We've got to give everybody a chance to hear this good news, believe on it, and experience the abundant life that I can give. And that's what we're doing right now. Every single one of us has heard that good news, I hope, responded to it, and is living out new life in Christ. 
And we have been sent out on a mission to take that good news to the whole world. It's important to remember the gospel is not an American thing. It's not a southern thing. It's not even a western thing. It is an Israelite thing. <laughs> it's a Jewish thing. But it's been spread throughout the whole world that here we are in a place that, that the Israelites didn't even know existed at the time. And we're preaching about Jesus because that's what the good news does. It fills the world. We're telling people you can have abundant life now and eternal life later. And how do I know? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, so will you. And that's really where the New Testament takes us until the book of Revelation. The other apostles and prophets hinted at this and reminded us of this, but until sin is finally and ultimately dealt with, the gospel will advance, the gospel will never be stopped, but there will always be that persistent infection bringing things back down. That it will get good, it'll get better, but then corruption will bring it right back. And that eventually, like our own bodies, where we're growing in faith, but this sinful flesh, as Paul says, my body's got to die and be resurrected before I can really be free of all this. The same thing is true of history. This is why we are not, as some would be called, post-millennialists. We don't believe that the gospel will just advance until there's no more sin in the world. Because sin dwells in the flesh. Sin is the curse of this world. And that's got to be dealt with. So we have the victory as disciples of Christ, but we also know that this is, in one sense, a losing battle until the ultimate problem can be solved. The next thing we are anticipating is what's called the rapture of the church, the, the catching up of the church. You ever seen a raptor, a bird of prey, swoop down and snatch something up and carry it into the sky? That's what we're waiting for when Jesus will return for his church. And then the Bible says Jesus in the future, at the end of time, will completely remove any kind of restraint or restriction upon the wickedness of man or the activity of the devil. And what kind of life are you going to get? Well, that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's a seven-year period that Jesus calls the worst tribulation the world has ever known. It always cracks me up because you watch football and you get to the end of the season. Like, We've had a lot of trials and tribulations this year. And it's like, yeah, maybe you, you know, ha had a sore knee for a few weeks and your starting quarterback was out for a while. But that doesn't compare to the great tribulation that will afflict the whole world. The serpent will have his way. We'll see what life looks like with man and Satan in charge and no involvement from God. And it will not be good. The Antichrist will rule. But... When Israel, don't forget them, when Israel's need is dire, when they're about to be destroyed, Jesus Christ will return with the saints, with the church, to establish, as we talked about last week, a millennial kingdom. And that's not a kingdom ruled by millennials, by the way. That's a 1,000-year although I might be okay with that because I am one of those. It's a 1,000-year kingdom on the earth where he will rule the nations with a rod of righteous iron. And that's where we left the story last time, at the millennium. How will those thousand years end? Satan will be released to tempt the nations one more time. An army will march upon Jerusalem again to try to fight with Jesus again. But this time, the Lord will send fire from heaven that will consume not just the devil, not just his armies, but all of creation, the earth, the heavens, and everything that is in them. The conflagration of all things after the final judgment where men are either sent eternity in the lake of fire to a place called hell or to live forever. That's how we ended it in chapter 20. It reminds us of what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he says that we right now are waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we left it, at, as Peter would say, the melting of all things. There's nothing left except for the righteous who the Lord has desired to preserve. But the question we have is, okay, what comes next? After Judgment Day, where do we go? That's what chapter 21 is all about. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 21 in the context of bringing the story to a close. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So after the conflagration, after the sky is rolled up like a scroll and heaven and earth flee away and death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire and the only thing that remains is the throne of God where he sends the righteous to eternal life and the wicked to eternal death. What does John see? A new heaven and a new earth. Just as Peter reminded us would follow the conflagration. According to Peter said, the promise... Well, which promise is that? We're going to quote from Isaiah a lot today, you guys. Isaiah fills the New Testament the more you read it. Let's look at this. Isaiah 65, 17 through 18. The Lord says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So the New Testament writers who took their Old Testament very seriously read that passage and conclude, if we know that the judgment is going to come, the Lord said he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we're waiting for. And John the Apostle gets to see it. And the good news is he wrote it down. So you and I can read all about it. A new heaven and a new earth where Jerusalem takes a prominent place. This world on which we live will come to an end. It's important to remember this. The millennium, the thousand year kingdom of Christ will take place on this very earth, on this terra firma. I remember hearing one person say, I just don't see how Jesus could reign on a corrupted planet. To which I must say, he has to reign on a corrupted planet because he promised to reign on a corrupted planet. He promised that he would establish a throne in Jerusalem from the river to the sea, that all the nations would come and bring tribute to the Lord. That has to happen. But after that ends, there will be a new world for which God has carefully glorified and fitted all those who believe on him. Specifically about this new world, it says the sea is new mo no more. Now, maybe you're like, well, I love going to the beach. What's wrong with having the sea? I, I'm sure it'll be just fine, okay? <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a problem. But the Lord says there's going to be no more sea. Why? Well, think of what the sea is. Why do we have waters that cover the sea? Because of the judgment that the Lord poured out at the flood. The waters of the earth, it says, were gathered beneath the earth and watered the, the ground that way. And that there was a canopy overhead when God first created. But when the flood happened, God busted open the deep and he let the rains fall from heaven. And so now you've got a drowned world. That's not the way God originally designed it was to be that way. It's a symbol of God's judgment. It's a symbol also of uncreation, of, of chaos, you might say. I try not to get too far into that because people love to try to say, see, that's why the Bible is just like everything else. It's not. But remember, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the what at the beginning? The waters. That out of water God brought the world. It's also in the Bible very often a symbol of the rebellious nations. That the nations are compared to the sea. Perhaps that comes from the imagery of traveling across the sea to get to another nation. It's also symbolized in the Bible as Satan's abode, the place where the devil lives. He's sometimes compared to this mythological figure, this legendary figure they had in the Old Testament called the Leviathan, this sea serpent that they would tell stories about. And the Bible would say, that's kind of what Satan is like, an evil, wicked serpent that lives down in the depths of the ocean. And there are psalms and prophets that talk about God is the one who slays the Leviathan. He's the one that destroys that giant sea serpent. Okay? It's also where the Antichrist Remember, the beast came up out of the sea. So the Bible doesn't hate the ocean, but it is used very often as a symbol of anti-godness, rebellion, and all that's going to be gone. 
Will there be waters and beaches? Maybe God will give you a lake. How about that? I don't see any reason why he couldn't. <laughs> I was talking to Micah yesterday. He said, what are you preaching about tomorrow? And I said, preaching about heaven, Revelation 21. We sit for a while and he goes, do you think that Silas, our dog, do you think Silas will be in heaven? I said, I'll bet if you asked Jesus and said, pretty please, he'll make that happen for you, my friend. There's no more sea. But then what does he see? A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven like a bride. And this is the centerpiece. This is, this is the thing that catches John's attention, that there is a shining city that God is building. And Isaiah 65, sorry, Isaiah 65 said, I'm going to make new heavens and a new earth and make Jerusalem to be a joy. That there will be a new and better Jerusalem built on God's new and better earth. Now, here's an important question of interpretation. Is this a literal city or does this city represent the church? Is this just a picture that, that we, as the people of God, are the bride of Christ? And so by calling this city the bride, we know that the bride is the church. So it's not that there's a real city. It's the people of God symbolized by a city. I think that that has some merit to it, but I don't think that it's correct. I think this is a literal city, and I'll tell you why. It's not so much picking up the idea of the bride of Christ like Paul talks about it in Ephesians and elsewhere. It's talking about the city of God like a bride in contrast to the city of Babylon that was compared to a harlot. It's the contrast that this city Babylon, which is represented by the woman, the whore that rides the beast. Remember we talked about that? It represents wickedness and rebellion and vileness and darkness. But when God's city shows up, the best thing you can compare it to is a pure bride prepared for her husband. Men usually don't cry much, but most guys have a hard time keeping it together when those doors open at the back of the church and there comes their bride dressed in white to see them right? Like a bride prepared for her husband. That's what this city is compared to. But of course, it should be said, we are compared to the bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. And this city is not just meant to be a city. It will represent that ongoing fellowship that we can have with the Lord. So I think you can gain what the symbols teach us while still acknowledging that this is a literal city that God is going to build. I think Isaiah 65 has to be fulfilled, for example. What makes this new world so wonderful it's not that it's new and it's shiny and it will be that, but that God will be with us like never before. It'll be like the Garden of Eden all over again in that fact that God would walk in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam. It's going to be like that all the time. See what he says? God will dwell with them and they will be his people. It's the announcement. The dwelling place of God is with man. We will be with the Lord. No barrier of sin. No further need to confess before you come to God. No need to feel that distance and separation because it'll all have been handled. It'll all have been taken care of. Your body will be glorified. There'll be no further temptation. So you'll be able to be in God's presence. Not only that, but because sin is gone, there's nothing left to bring sorrow into your life. Nothing else to make you cry. No more pain to which people say things like, well, what happens if you're in the new world and you jump off a cliff and hit the bottom? It's probably going to hurt. It says no more pain. <laughs> if you can't figure it out, that just means you're not as smart as you think you are. That doesn't mean that God is wrong here. No more sorrow or pain. But you know, some people even read that and they go, well, then will we even be human anymore? Because the human condition, that, that struggle, that suffering is what defines us as people. No, 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 no. Those things are an intrusion. It's a virus. It's corruption. And we say things like, well, the sea is not going to be there. The sea reminds us of judgment. But the sea is beautiful. Isn't it wonderful being out on the ocean? Or we say things like, yeah, that was a hard time. But man, I, there were so many moments of, of overcoming that I, I cherish. Or man, what's it going to be like if we can't have anything to fight for or to strive for any longer? What we are saying is we can't imagine life without sin. Well, I'm not saying I want to I keep sinning. I know that. But that just tells you how deeply embedded this is. It's like speaking to somebody that has never experienced a wonderful, a wonderful thing. You know, if you're driving with your child to Disney World for the first time, and it's early in the morning, and they don't want to be up. I want to go home. I don't like this. I don't want to go there. It's like, just settle down. You're going to like it. 
I promise you're going to like it. Or if you make something, I remember uh, we were at a barbecue place not too long ago and we got banana pudding for the kids and they're all like, oh yeah, come on, come on. Except for Sammy, who never had it before. Sammy, try some. Mm, mm, no, come on, you'll like, no, no, no. And kind of forced it in his mouth and he goes, mm. you know? <laughs> That's what it's compared to. Is like you can't imagine life without pain, without struggle, without sorrow. Some people even say things life won't be worth it without struggle and pain and sorrow. Well, you got to feel bad for somebody like that. You know, people say, well, like the Bible says, life is suffering. No, 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 no. The Buddha said that. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, I'm going to make you a place where there will be no more suffering. And you don't have to be absorbed into the eternal God and lose your identity to have it either. That's corruption. Rather than letting Satan corrupt and destroy his plan. I think John Milton in Paradise Lost portrayed this better than anybody else I've seen. Where he, he portrays the divine counsel as speaking and saying, Satan has brought sin into the world. We have to judge it. We have to destroy it. But then Jesus speaks up in the, in the story and he says, are we going to let him take this from us? Are we going to let him ruin what we made? Are we going to let him steal away the people that we love so much? No, we're going to do what it takes to reclaim this world. Because God doesn't get his things stolen from him. You don't come into God's house and mess things up. God will let the fullness of sin run its course. Fine, you want to rule yourselves? Let's see how it goes. Seven years and everything's about to be blown up. My turn. 1,000 years of serving me. I think I've made my point. Satan has not stolen anything from the Lord. And then he's going to make a new world, get rid of that guy and say, now let's move on into the future. He's going to recreate so that all things can be made new. Well, let's look at verses six through eight. The Lord said to me, verse six, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God himself makes an announcement. This is God the Father. It says, the one who's sitting on the throne. And he says, it is done. Very similar to John 19.30 when Jesus hanging on the cross said, It is finished. Two different words, but the same sentiment. The point is, everything is over. History is done. The story has gone from the beginning to the end. It's done. And God calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, which is fitting as we come to the end of humanity's story, right? God was like, I was there at the beginning when I made it, and I'm here at the end when I put an end to it, and we're starting over. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. That's why we call it an alphabet, by the way. The first two letters of Greek are alpha, beta. You getting it? So alphabet is ABCs, but it's just a fancy way of saying it. And the last letter of the Greek alphabet is omega. Alpha just looks like the letter A. Omega kind of looks like this arch right here. In lowercase, it looks like a W. I don't know why I didn't come up with it. But alpha and omega, you might say, I'm A to Z, baby. I'm the start, I'm the end. I've created everything and I've uncreated the things that were broken and now I've recreated something even better. And he says, anyone who's thirsty can drink the water of life. He compares this new world to a cold drink of water to a thirsty man. That water that brings everlasting life. And isn't it true that all the world is thirsty for something that they can't quite understand? Isn't everyone just longing? We sang it. Is all creation groaning? There's a longing. There's a dissatisfaction at the heart of every man. There's the thought that something else must be out there. There's got to be something else. And the Lord's like, you're right, because sin has corrupted you and blinded your eyes and stopped your ears. But he says, but if you come to me, I'll satisfy that longing because what you're longing for is heaven. As I say sometimes, every longing of the human heart is a longing for God. You just don't realize it. You might be applying it in the wrong place. You might be chasing it sinfully. But the reason the sin doesn't satisfy when you chase it is because that longing you're trying to satisfy cannot be satisfied through sin. It can only be satisfied through heaven. And this comparison to a glass of water is another Isaiah reference. Isaiah 55.1, the prophet writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, 
Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It says, if you're thirsty, come and get it. It's free. That's what the Lord says here. He's picking up that same thread that he said to Isaiah. Water of life without payment. Okay, I don't have to pay for it. Then who's the one that gets to receive this? The one who conquers. The one who conquers. This has been the theme of the book of Revelation since chapter 2. Writing to the churches that were still alive at the time. He's saying, keep going. Overcome. Talks about the martyrs that overcome the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. How does a Christian conquer? How do we overcome the world, as 1 John says? You endure to the end in faith. Haven't you seen, tragically, as you've gone through life, most people don't finish? You look back at the people you went to church with when you first got saved, or your youth group, or your family even, and sometimes you feel like you're the only one still holding on. I mean, even pastors and theologians and ministers that we look to as, as leaders and guides, they don't finish. They don't conquer. It's hard. Jesus said it's a narrow road and it's hard and it's difficult and not many people find it. But he says, but those that do conquer, that make it all the way to the end, that are willing to die in Christ, then they will have this inheritance. He also gives a list of those who will not inherit it. There's eight things here, which by the way, that's a very common number that the prophets would use. They'd say, here's seven things. You know what? Eight things that you've done wrong. Amos does that a lot. But he gives eight different sins that's going to keep somebody out. The cowardly. Maybe I should preach a message sometimes on cowardice, because the Bible does not think that that's okay. But specifically here, it's not just being fearful of going into battle, although the Bible doesn't smile on that either. It's the cowardice that says, I refuse to stand against persecution and opposition to finish for Jesus Christ. That kind of coward will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The faithless. Not meaning the person that doesn't have faith. What it means is the person that is not faithful. You know, if you leave your wife or you leave your husband at some point, you were faithless to the value made. So it's the same idea. Somebody that commits themselves to Christ and then walks away. Faithless. You showed yourself to be faithless. The detestable. This is interesting. That one comes from the Greek word for stink. The stinky, you could translate that. <laughs> But it's not just talking about dirty, obviously. It's talking about moral filth. You could say anything that is unusual wickedness. Things that are beyond just the common sins that trouble everybody to the things that the Bible would call abominations. Murderers. People who kill. But also, Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, those that have hate in their heart. Can I just throw one thing out there real quick? And I'm not trying to start a, a firestorm here, I promise. But, you know... There's a trend growing right now as, as the terms like racism and prejudice have been redefined. There are people that are saying, well, if you don't have this privilege or if I do have this privilege and you can't be racist towards another person, the Christian is not really concerned about what you call it. The problem at the root of everything is hate. Because Jesus said, if you hate your brother, then you're deserving of hellfire. If you insult your brother, he says, you're liable to the judgment. So as terms get shifted and moved around, that's just one example. But we don't really care about the term here. What does Jesus say? Well, this doesn't fall under this political category. Who cares? Jesus is going to say, did you hate somebody? I'm not worried about the rest of it. Murderers, haters, the sexually immoral. Where does pornea which ranges from pornography and lust all the way to adultery and all manner of travesties. Sorcerers, pharmakia. What does that sound like? Pharmacy, drugs. So what does sorcery have to do with drugs? A lot. That's how the Native Americans would do their sorcery and do their magic. They would take peyote or some other mind-altering substance. Marijuana made its way to the United States because the Beatles went over to uh, India and they talked to the gurus and what did they say? You want to meet God? You got to smoke some weed. That's not a joke. That's how they worship their false gods. It's altered states of mind. That, that's what these witches and these wizards would do, is they would get high to have this out-of-body experience and then communicate with demons and devils. That's why the Bible connects those two things, which is why people say, man, when you, when you take this drug, like you, you see people and you meet things. Like The Bible says, run for your life. Stay away from that stuff, because it's real. You don't want anything to do with that. The Bible refuses to let us have shortcuts to spiritual enlightenment. Have you noticed that? Pharmakia, sorcerers, idolaters, those that worship false idols, and all liars. 
Like, wow, we just went from uh, sorcery and idolatry to lying? Yeah. Because Jesus is the truth. This is going to be a place where no lies are allowed. Everything is out in the open. It's real and it's true. And if you can't live the truth, especially in a culture today that doesn't even believe in truth, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Sins of commission and omission that keep us out. But do you notice that the alternative, well, how do I not do that? He doesn't say, therefore, be this, 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 and this. He just says, conquer, which we know what conquer means, means finish in Christ. He doesn't say you've got to complete this list. He says you've got to believe and hang on until the end. And the one who hangs on is the one who gets to inherit the kingdom, to inherit this new heaven and new earth. He says, I'll adopt you as my son, as my daughter into God's family. That doesn't cost you anything. But if we're too tied up to these other things, then we're going to miss out on it. Paul said in Romans 8, 14 through 17, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, meaning the Holy Spirit teaches us to call God in heaven, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, conquer, finish, right? That we may also be glorified with him. And that's what Revelation 21 is all about, is being glorified with God. Why would you live as an outcast and a rebel when you can have an inheritance like this? Why are you trying to impress people on the internet that don't even like you and throwing in the face of God his own son's blood that he shed for you? Verse 9, long section here. He's going to describe this city. You ready? Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Uh, probably the one that showed him Babylon also. Because he says, that was, the, that was the harlot. Let me show you the pure bride. He said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Why? You're going to need uh, some distance to get the scope of this thing, John. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's a Roman measurement. It's about 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits. That's 18 inches, more or less, 216 feet. By human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. John catches a glimpse of the city. And it says, this is the bride of the Lord. Now, again, the symbolism here is this is the pure city as opposed to the wicked city we saw before. And the city will be populated by the people who actually are the bride of Christ, which is the church. He has to see it from a distance because of how big it is. And the first thing he noticed is how bright and shining the city is, glorious and radiant. He says this city is imbued with God's own glory. The glory that made Moses' face shine when he saw God, that glory fills every brick and every street of this city. It has 12 gates. 
And the gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. You got to remember, Israel will remain preeminent among God's people. It's not that Gentiles are kept out, but they're still God's chosen special people. He's not done with them yet. This would be Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. So we'll say, I came in by the Naphtali gate. I came in by the Reuben gate. Three on each side. And each one has an angel as a doorman welcoming you. Say, what a boring job in eternity. Ah, but what does the psalmist say? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. And that angel gets the job to do that. And there are, tw there are foundations, 12 foundations, think of like big foundation stones here, that are each inscribed with the name of one of the apostles. John saw his own name inscribed on one of these foundations. Almost that have felt like. This is the John foundation. So this would be who? Peter, James and John, Andrew, the other Simon called the Zealot, Bartholomew, James, the other one, the son of Alphaeus, Philip, Matthew, or Levi, Judas, not Iscariot, probably why he started going by Thaddeus after Judas did what he did, Thomas, and then there's the 12th one. And this is what people love to debate. Like, okay, who's the 12th apostle? The short answer is the Bible tells us who the 12th apostle is. If you read Acts chapter 1, when they were choosing the 12th apostle, it says the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was counted among the 12 from that day forward. So every reference you see from that point on in the Bible where it says the 12, it's including Matthias. We say, what about Paul? He was an apostle too. He was, but so was Barnabas, and so was Silas, and so was Timothy, and so was Junia and Andronicus. There are several people in the Bible that are given that title of apostle, but that does not make them one of the 12 with a capital T. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to the 12 and does not include himself in that list. So the 12th foundation, I believe it's Matthias. He doesn't get the honor he deserves, I don't think, in the Lord's church. But if we show up and it says, you know, Pablo on the side, I'm cool with that, man. It's all right. <laughs> Tyler, you were wrong. Oh, sorry, Lord. <laughs> but how big is this thing? 1,500 miles long, wide, and high. 1,500 miles, to which very tiresome people that I read about said, well, that's unrealistic, because that means that it's extending into space, and there's no gravity in space. And I'm like, you need to go outside, my friend. <laughs> All right? Who's not to say that the new heaven and new earth won't be bigger than the other one? And wouldn't it be cool to have floors that are like low gravity in space? Like you got the heavy ones down here, and then you got the light ones up there. Who knows? It says that the walls are 144 cubits, which are 216 feet, which seems odd if it's 1,500 miles high, because then what's the point of the walls, right? You can kind of like toss a rock over them. Well, here's just one solution. I don't know if it persuaded me, but it was just an interesting idea. Uh, apparently, it was a belief in the early church, according to some fathers, that it was in the shape of a pyramid, that it wasn't a square, that it was 1,500 miles high, but that it was square on each side, and then it went up. So the walls would have been high enough to protect anybody from getting in, but also there it is going up. I also, in my own thinking about this, uh, you consider something like New York, New York City, which is very big around the edges. And you might say, well, New York is, you know, this high. It's like, well, not all of it. There's skyscrapers. There's parts of the city that reach that high. And, you know, you can come up to your own conclusions on that one. It's just cool to think about. It says the walls are jasper. Now, we, we call jasper a different gem than probably what they ascribed it. Think of it like a diamond, because it says it was clear as glass. But the city itself shines like gold. And every foundation stone is a different gem. Twelve different gems. Very similar to Ezekiel 28, when it talks about the foundation stones of Eden. Or Exodus 28, the, the stones that were on the priest's breastplate. It's the same stones. And of course, as everybody knows, the gates are made of pearl, and the streets are made of gold. Again, tiresome people. You know, there's no reason to think it's actually made of gold, because that would be materialistic. It's like, he said it was made of gold. <laughs> well, why? Because it's the most valuable thing that we know of, and God says, I'm going to pave the streets with that stuff, man. Point is, the valuable things are going to be used for common use. Because the things that we have are going to be worth so much more. The logistics of this are really not important, are they? It's a new world. 
but the splendor and the purpose matter most. God will create a new world with a shining city as its crown jewel where God and his people can have everlasting fellowship together. And it's beautiful as God deserves. Amen. And as God desires, the temple and the tabernacle were beautiful too. Which this is just as a side note here. This is why I do not have a problem with beautiful churches. I don't have a problem with cathedrals and stained glass. I don't have a problem with LED walls and bright lights. I don't care about those things. That's, that seems unseemly. Why? God's worth it. God's worth making something exciting and beautiful and wonderful. You want people to be able to walk in and go, this is not quite like anywhere else. This is where God lives. You know, one of these days, we're going to have a really nice space to be in. And I can't wait because God deserves that. Is it as important as ministering to the people? Uh, no, but who says they have to be in conflict with one another? Amen? Amen? Let's finish up this chapter. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What catches John's attention in this new Jerusalem, apparently it was recognizable to him as Jerusalem, but he said, wait a minute, where's the temple? Where's the temple? Why is this matter? Well, first of all, because it's God's city, the temple would be there, but this was written in the 90s AD. The temple had been destroyed more than 20 years before this. Imagine how the, the Jews and the church fathers would have responded to that. How would that have felt to them? To see the holy city burning, to find out that as Jesus promised, not one stone is left standing on another. And they know that God dwells in our hearts, but still, what must that have felt like for them? And so John, looking forward to the new Jerusalem, looks and sees it and goes, where's the temple? Because that's his heart, is beating for a new temple that won't be defiled by the Antichrist this time. But he realizes that the temple is unnecessary because God is with us. God is, the whole world is a holy of holies now because that's where God is. We don't need to have a single place to go see him because he's made it possible for us to have constant fellowship with him. He also notes that there's no sun or moon or stars. The glory of God gives the world light filling the whole world. And he says, there's not going to be any transition from day to night anymore. It's going to be one endless, wonderful day. That's eternity. There's one day that never, ever ends. He says that glory and honor will come into the city from nations and kings. To which we go, wait a minute, what nations and what kings? The nations that were saved, that believed on the Lord. There's going to be Americans in heaven. Because we are Americans, and you're going to retain that when you get to heaven. Otherwise, how is every tribe and nation and tongue going to praise the Lord? We're going to retain those things. And he says there's going to be kings. That's why the Bible says we'll sit with him on his throne. We will reign with him. That there will be those that are appointed to rule and to reign with him. And we're going to bring glory and honor into the city. Apparently, there's work to do. You go, oh, man, no, 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 not like that. The eternal state, friends, is not... Getting fat and lazy, sitting on a harp, sitting on, <laughs> sitting on a cloud, learning to play the harp. People hear that and go, I don't want to do that. And say, like, where did you get your ideas of heaven? Looney Tunes? <laughs> well, like, yeah, you, they, they die and they drift up to heaven with a little harp and that's what they do forever. That doesn't sound fun to me. It will be one endless day of productive, fulfilling pursuit. God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth like he made the old one and say, now go out and have some adventures. Go out and make something of this world that I've made. It'll be the mandate at the beginning of Eden, but it'll be different, it'll be better, and there'll be no time limit, no death, no pain, no sorrow, and God will be right there with us. Apparently, we're going to fill this world, live in it, build things, make things, create things, and periodically bring them back to the city of the Lord so that all of God's people and God himself can enjoy them. Isn't that better than to sit around on a harp? Yeah, I said it on purpose that time. 
Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. It says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah reminds us that evil will be burning forever in the lake of fire, while the rest of us enjoy everlasting life for eternity. But do you see how between Isaiah and John here, we're getting a picture of, of time. I don't know where the idea that there's no time in heaven came from, but it's simply not in the Bible. He says there's going to be Sabbaths. There's going to be times of measurement where we come in and we bring these things to the Lord. We're going to be making things, doing things, pursuing things, and we're going to bring them back to glorify God with them. So we're going to end here with three things that you're going to be doing forever in heaven. We have a, a, a very limited picture of what eternity looks like. You know, right now it says to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord, to be in heaven with him. But then we're going to come back to the earth for the millennium. Then after that, God's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And there's going to be things that we're doing. So just consider what could we do for all eternity with no time limit, no getting tired, no getting weary. The sun will always be up. You don't have to clock in, don't have to clock out. Nobody's going to force you to do nothing. I came up with three things. Number one is an endless improvement of skill. You know, there's lots of things that I like to do. Catelyn was giving me a hard time about that the other day, that I love to pick up something, get all the stuff together, learn how to do it, only to then realize I ain't got time for this. I'd love to learn the banjo, but it's just not going to happen, man. Well, what about when you get into eternity in heaven, there's going to be eternity for you to learn how to do all sorts of different things. Why not? Why wouldn't you? Take the time to learn the instruments that you wanted to do. Take the time to get good at something artistic. Take the time to learn how to sing. Take the time to learn how to build something. Take the learn, time to learn how to think through things, how to write things down. This is going to be forever. There's going to be no limit on this stuff. So the things that you think, man, I, I really would love to pursue that. I just don't have time. I don't have energy. I'd rather do something else. And heaven, there's no clock on this thing. Just go for it. Just do it. Take harp lessons with David if you want to for a few billion years. That's the second thing, by the way. Endless development of relationships. You're going to have forever and forever to get to know everybody. That means that after a while, you will have, the, compared to the deepest relationship you have right now on this earth, you will have that with everyone who's ever lived. Because you will have time to do that. So you know what? We went to church together. We never got to talk. Let's take a trillion years and hang out. Yeah. Development of relationship. Get to know a few Bible characters. My daughter is rather excited to meet Samson when she gets to heaven, I'll tell you. And there might be some carnal reasons for that too, but, <laughs> but she really wants to meet Samson. My boys will talk about, I can't wait one day to meet. They'll say, is so-and-so in heaven? And I'll you know, try to give them my best guess. Like, Good, because I want to talk to them. I want to find out what that was like. I want to have David play me some of those songs and hear what they actually sounded like, right? I'm like, all right, now let's work on the remix for a billion years and see what comes on. <laughs> Development of relationships. And you will have the chance to get to know what is good and what is wonderful about every person. You will not only be known by the Lord, but you will be known and loved by every person that God brings into that eternal state. And the third thing is in an endless fulfillment of spirit. The things in your heart those tears that you've cried, those scars that you'll carry, they're going to be washed away and wiped away. You're going to be growing in your acknowledgement of the Lord, your understanding of God, your, your ability to worship Him, the reasons why you ought to praise Him. There's no reason to think that even your mind cannot improve beyond what it is now. I certainly hope so. We're living in a cursed world. But it's going to be satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. Not that feeling that you get after you've had a big meal and then you kind of feel bad about it the next day because I overdid it and I overslept and all oh, that was too much and it was too many carbs. You're not going to have none of that. Eternal satisfaction that just stays and lasts. Endless improvement of skill, endless development of relationships, and endless fulfillment of your spirit. How does that sound to you? That sounds pretty great to me. The last thing, friends, that the new world is going to be is boring Heaven seems kind of boring. You really think it's going to be boring? And it's not like one of the, well, you'll like it when you get there. You'll like the boringness of heaven. 
God's going to say, good, we finally got all that stuff out of the way. Now we can actually do what I always wanted, which is to have a world filled with my people going out and living abundant lives. God is too great for that. Heaven, the eternal state, if you want to be more particular, the new heavens and new earth equals life without downside. How about that? Are we going to play football in heaven? Why not? Why wouldn't we? Oh, we'll be too holy for all that. Really? You think God is that, that lame, that much of a killjoy? And you know what? You'll have time to get good at it, too. You'll get to be all-time quarterback for a few centuries. And some of you I can feel kind of pulling back on. This all feels sort of, sort of fleshly and carnal and not very spiritual. Don't you remember that Jesus told us and Paul reminded us that when you have the Holy Spirit within you, when you have been saved by Jesus, that all things are there for you to richly enjoy? Paul says nothing is sinful of itself, that it's only sin that corrupts things. You're going to be able to take all the wonderful and best parts of life, plus all the new stuff that we're going to be discovering forever and forever, and you're going to get to enjoy it to the fullest. So, well, it just seems sort of carnal, just kind of be, to be happy and joyful all the time. Oh, my friend, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. It is peace. He wants to take you there. He wants to bring you to a new place and a new city. What do you think the art galleries of heaven are going to be? Pretty special, I think. Who is this for? Who is this for that we just read about? Those who have had their names registered in the Lamb's Book of Life. Right now, we are in the middle of the story. We're actually coming to the end of the story of God's plan to redeem the world. He's already done the most important thing. Right now, we're in the process of telling everybody. And the end is going to come when God catches us up to be with him forever. And the world will be ravaged for seven years. Then Christ will return and establish his righteous kingdom for a thousand years, which will be glorious, but will also be troubled because at the end, Satan will come back. He will try to rally the people one more time, but God will not allow it. The world will be burned up with fiery heat. The righteous and the unrighteous will be judged and either sent to heaven or hell. And then there will be new heavens and a new earth with a glorious shining city called New Jerusalem. And we'll be sent out to fill that world to be in it to pursue God and be with him forever and to bring the things that we create into his presence as an acceptable offering with no sin, no pain, no tears, no downside. That's coming soon. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the one that has made all of this possible for you, then that's you. You'll be part of the story's conclusion. And once we get there, I mean, what's going to happen? What's God going to do next? I don't know. That's when the real adventure begins, isn't it? All these things that we thought we couldn't live without, that sin that I can't live without, that pain that just defines my life, or I don't not see what the point of living in life when there's not going to be anything to fight hard against, all that's going to fall away. And you're going to experience what life without limitation looks like. So I have to give the call. Don't you want to come and be an adopted son of the king? I said it last week. I'll say it again. I'm here today taking registrations in the Lamb's Book of Life. What do I got to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and conquer. Remember, hold on to the very end. And then we can dwell in that place together. And that's the hope that drives every Christian. That's the thing that makes us joyful even at funerals. That's the thing that allows us to endure through all the pain of life with a smile on our face. That one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new.